Linda Mora is a professor of English at Bishop's University. She was the Craig Dobbin Chair of Canadian Studies in Ireland from 2016 to 2017 and a Spruill Fellow at the University of California, Berkeley in 2016. Her research focuses on Canadian women writers and their archives which has culminated in her monograph, Unarrested Archives, a finalist for the Gabrielle Roy Prize in 2015. She's also the co-editor of Margaret Lawrence and Jack McClelland Letters, published by the University of Alberta Press, which is what we're going to talk about today. Welcome to The Bibliophile. Thank you. <laughs> These uh, letters, this correspondence between Canada's greatest publisher and one of our greatest writers began in 1959 and last until 1986. Correct, yes. So, um, how did they start? Someone uh, put Margaret Lawrence into the spotlight. Uh, someone set up a connection between Jack McClellan and Margaret Lawrence. And so she ended up sending him a copy of her first manuscript, which he clearly liked and published. And so the relationship unfurled thereafter. Um, so the relationship started off in a way that was very formal, as you might imagine, because they didn't really know each other. But they quickly realized that they had a kind of uh, compatibility, intellectual compatibility, which the letters uh, really showcase. It took him about 10 years to sign the letters love. <laughs> Very good observation. Yes, it did. It wasn't a highly affectionate relationship, and it was always ultimately professional, even when they were signing their letters love. No question. Um, but highly affectionate, very respectful. They supported each other in all kinds of ways through troubled personal lives. And even as they went through those troubles, they still had this kind of mutual admiration and respect. They maintained that all throughout. Yeah, I really couldn't get over how how supportive he was. He, oh, yes. In almost every letter that dealt with one of her books or manuscripts, he said, you're the only writer that I've ever met, or one of the few whose work continues to get better and better. Yes, he did say that to her. So, uh, so as I've just said, he, he was very respectful of her, but he was an admirer of her work, of her craft. So McClellan has that kind of reputation um, as a publisher for being flamboyant and difficult and, and fiery. But I think he was a multifaceted personality, uh, which Margaret Lawrence deeply appreciated too. So he actually took the time to read her manuscripts. There's one moment he recounts staying up all night to read, I think it was The Diviners. He stood, he stayed up all night to read The Diviners and wept while he read it. He thought it was wonderful. Um, and then wrote back the next day to say so. So he was very committed, not only to Lawrence, but to his writers who were part of his company. He was very supportive of, of all of them if he believed in them. Once he believed in them, he was he was behind them 100%. The reason that he was such a great publisher is that he did, he, you could tell he read everything because of the comments that he made yes. on the manuscripts. They're so, like they're, he doesn't like getting into detail, but he he had such penetrating comments. Insight. Uh, from bigger t details to smaller details. So there were some tussles about the title of some of the books. The Stone Angel was not initially called The Stone Angel. They went through about three incarnations before they arrived at that particular title. And sometimes Lawrence, she wouldn't take umbrage. She'd get frustrated, though, if what she suggested didn't immediately find approval. Mm. However, they often came to a resolution and they often decided together, yes, this works for both of us. Um, there were moments too he suggested condensing certain manuscripts or omitting particular things. And unless she was deeply committed to an idea or to a concept or to the aesthetic whole, 
she would, unless you were committed to something like that, um, she would often capitulate and say, yes, I, I do see the, the larger gain in doing what you're suggesting here. So it was a very collaborative relationship. They worked really well together. Yeah, I wouldn't even use the word capitulated. I just yeah, that's a wrong word. I, I mean, agree. <laughs> I just I the way I saw it at least was that they were working together to make this the best possible yeah. text they could. Yes. Yeah, I think that's right. I think she would. I, I was trying to find the word. It's not capitulate. It's not given. She would certainly agree mm. that the changes he was making were for the better good. Yeah, the, and the she she knew that, didn't she? She I think that's what she really loved about him was that she knew that he had her best interest at heart she all the time. Him. She trusted him. There there were moments when other authors would either publicly criticize him or leave the company and she vowed she would never do that. She utterly trusted him even when things did get very fiery. She didn't leave ever. No, I think she, I think she said something like that. It's, as long as you're there, uh, you're publishing my, my stuff, right? Yes, yes. Well, there's a poem at the very beginning oh, yeah, of yeah. the book. Uh, if I'll, I'll just sure. see if we can flip to it. That she wrote that poem at one of the more um, trying periods in the relation, not even in the relationship, in the company. He was, I think, getting all kinds of critical feedback and so she wrote roses are red violets are blue one of your authors has faith in mixed two and, and it goes on from there mm -hmm. and so that's she tr tried to show him in various ways i endorse you don't worry i'm not leaving no matter what other people may think and that i mean that's so important to every relationship and trust isn't it in respect and boy it, it really uh, i guess just it just continued to be reinforced over the years in some ways, yes. There were moments when they had difficulties, so I've alluded to those briefly. What specifically then? Um, so, for example, he had invited her to a, a fundraising supper, and so um, the gentleman who bought a table in order to... Um, so what McClellan was doing was selling tickets for tables, and so each author was assigned a to a table and then a patron would buy tickets. The particular patron who bought tickets for Lawrence's table just didn't show up so Lawrence yeah. sat there by herself yeah. which was regrettable. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially for someone who's you know uncomfortable uh, with that. Already with the public limelight yeah. Yeah. Um, and someone of that stature already in that period it was not a happy moment and for some reason McClellan didn't notice that this happened. He didn't notice, it didn't come to his attention until later she wrote about it. There were a series of other smaller issues that, that um, unfurled just before that particular moment, and then she sat at the table by herself. So she wrote to him later and said this was completely unacceptable. But of course it wasn't, he wasn't, it wasn't intended. Mm -hmm. And so I think the fundamental respect between them remained because he understood this wasn't meant to deliberately injure her. Mm -hmm. In mm -hmm. fact, the fact that he gave her a table and assigned her this kind of prestigious table meant the opposite. It just didn't turn out well. That was one particular instance. There was another, however, that was much more fiery, and it was related to the Writers' Union of Canada. Which time, Jack never really respected or... No. Yeah. No. I, I hope someone else will also write about this in, in the future. It's a great moment in, in Canadian literary history. So the Canadian authors across the country were trying to develop a template for the kind of contract that they should be using with other publishers because, rightly so, they were concerned about making sure that they were properly protected in their agreements. And while Lawrence didn't mean to suggest that Jack was unfair in his agreements, she wasn't sure that this was the case for other publishing companies out there. She wanted to help young writers and make sure they didn't get ripped off, right? You got it. Yeah. So she was in the process of developing this template and McClelland was infuriated. So <laughs> he wrote something like a four-page letter in response to, to suggest that he was unhappy with this kind of agreement. And so she threatened to resign. She was on the board of directors for McClellan and Stewart in this period. She threatened to resign. And so it went. Uh, they, there was this kind of tussle between the two of them. In the end, the board of directors also backed 
Lawrence. Um, and so he said, I therefore have to extend an olive branch to you, but the olive branch will be from the northern climes, which, are, which aren't as sweet <laughs> as the southern. In other words, he was very reluctantly tendering that olive branch to her. But as with so many uh, situations, he does, he lards it with humor. Yes. Oh my, oh my heavens, yeah. Which again is one of the things that make this, makes this book so much fun. Oh, it's, their letters are, are funny and warm and charming. They say things to each other that at moments, so I was working on this with Laura Davis, so I should say this first. Yeah, um, what were the two roles there, or were they? Did you have complementary roles? Well, we had slightly different roles. Sure. So Dr. Laura Davis invited me to work on the project with her. Laura is a specialist in Margaret Lawrence. And so she very clearly knows the body of her work far better than I do. My expertise is related to women in archives. So it's more general, if you will. And it's about going through archives, knowing what was saved and why and how they saved it. So I, I approached the archive with a different set of questions than Laura did. So did you both spend a fair amount of time down at McMaster? Yes. Yeah. And yes, York we did. too, right? And also at York. Uh, yeah. Laura spent a little more time than I did. She returned. We went and looked through the papers together. We photographed what we could, made sure that we had the permissions for everything, and the, the family members who gave permission were wonderful about this project, too. Mm. Who and, were they? Well, um, you'd have to find that out. <laughs> I know, but uh, I just thought the listeners might want to know, but you want them to find out. Yeah, I, okay. don't, I didn't want to give that out. Uh, I okay. would rather not that yep. be so common as sure. knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, so, so Laura secured the permissions, and... Uh, we went through the material the first time photographing everything. She hired a research assistant who helped to transcribe the letters and then put them into order and then we read through the manuscript several times to try to make sure that we that everything was transcribed properly, that it was in the right order, that we understood what was happening. Then we had to go off and research different facets of the book because of course sometimes we didn't know what they were talking about. But the first read was really in the archive. And so when, when we were in the archive together, we would often stop um, just to read the letters, not just to photograph them. And often we would burst into laughter and exchange letters with each other and recount what had just been said. And so it was absolutely marvelous just reading through and understanding how that relationship evolved over time. Hmm. Do you want to talk about how it evolved? Um, sure. So, uh, the, I mean, the relationship the, between Jack McClelland and Margaret Lawrence, <laughs> not mine and Laura's, as a working... Let's go with both. Okay. So, I'll start with Laura's relationship with me, because as I say, Laura invited me, and I felt like it was a great honor and distinction to do it, because I didn't know as much about Margaret Lawrence as she did. Um, and so, Laura remains the, uh, the, one of the residing experts on Margaret Lawrence, but I learned so much while I did it. I also learned a great deal about McClelland, although I have some other project where, where he is marginally, he intersects marginally with my other projects, but largely I learned a lot this way. What was the most important thing you learned? Um, I, I think I learned how much Lawrence and McClelland had a hand in shaping the Canadian literary scene. I didn't know. It wasn't so apparent to me until we read these letters together. And how did they do that? So, of course, people know McClelland as the publisher who was making decisions about the Canadian literary scene and picking certain authors. He developed this conference, the 100 Authors Conference. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that mm. in just a minute. But um, it was clear that he was making decisions about who he should publish and he had very clear reasons about why he wanted to do that or who he should publish. So before him, his father owned the company and... John, yes. yes, and his father didn't have the same mandate, but when Jack took over, he decided he really wanted the company to focus strictly on Canadian authors, which was not something that was done in the period. Mm -hmm. And often, as, as was still the case to a certain degree, authors had to publish or get an agreement with publishing companies either in the States or in Britain. They couldn't just publish in Canada. And so what, what happened is that Canadian authors would often seek publication abroad first. Yeah, like Burton and 
Farley exactly. Mowat both did that in exactly. New York. Exactly. Yeah. Oh yeah, Monica uh, Richler. So many authors were doing that because it, it was the way to find publication. Mm -hmm. So McClellan, in effect, was changing the literary scene so that wasn't as necessary and then no longer necessary. That's the line. And he was changing that, that, that trajectory. So that was one thing that he was doing. But with Lawrence, it, what was so amazing was to watch or read, rather, how she became involved in that process. That's what I didn't expect. Well, what's so neat is that she, it's not it's it's she's living that process. Yes, yes. It's uh, it's yeah. discussing it with him. Yeah, like she's <laughs> she's actually going through it and dealing with British and American publishers. Yes. with her material. Yes, exactly. He advises her to get an agent. He suggests certain agents to her. So he's he's involved in her literary career very specifically. But it opens up too, because in the letter, in the letters, they begin to discuss other authors, why they favor particular authors, why they don't favor particular authors. So um, they do like Mordecai Richler. Rudy Weeb is someone Margaret Lawrence absolutely endorses. She sees him as opening the way for Indigenous writing. Of course, Rudy Weeb is, has fallen out of favor for all kinds of political. Oh, contemporary reasons. He's not really an indigenous author. He's not recognized as such now. But for Lawrence, he was seen as someone who was opening the way. Well, she talks about him sort of explaining the difference between the indigenous outlook and the Western outlook in, yes. in a way that was really important, right? Yes. At least it opens that door. So mm -hmm. before Lawrence, there weren't that many writers who were allowing for that kind of conversation. She was very clear mm -hmm. that she, she thought it should happen. Yeah. Um, so they endorsed Rudy Weeb. They were ambivalent about Atwood. <laughs> they, she doesn't, she doesn't appear much in, the, in these letters. No. 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 So Margaret Lawrence doesn't have much to say about no. Margaret Atwood. No. I should say that it's really McClelland who is more ambivalent. It's, but even he, in the letters, there's not that much on Atwood. No, it's survival that he takes issue with. Yeah. Um, and so he thinks that that is a book of criticism that should not have happened. Well, and I think he this uh, hundred uh, yes. was a kind of a response to that. But you yes. know what? I, I mean, uh, I shouldn't impose myself too much By here. By all means, do so. But <laughs> I, I think that's probably what uh, Atwood wanted. In a way, she was to be just like George Grant was being provocative. And she spurred uh, McClellan on to doing this, I think. That may be. That may be. He she's, a, she's a gadfly. Yeah, that may be. I'm not sure. Again, I, that's just my take on it. I'm not sure that McClellan saw her that way. That may be that that's what she was doing. I don't know. Yeah. But McClellan was deeply irritated um, by that book, would never have published it, he mm. says and um, thought that it was detrimental to what he was trying to do with the Canadian literary scene, which was to get it out of this kind of groove, whereby people saw it in a particular way. He wanted it to be a much more expansive view. Mm. And so, to his mind, survival worked counter to that kind of project. Yeah. Now, we can get into this uh, conference where that really launches the uh, new Canadian library. Essentially, that's what it does, yes. Uh, and it's, his, his criteria has been, at least some people view it as, you don't have to pay copyright and there's a lot of M&S uh, stuff in that list. It's the second point that, that uh, offended Margaret Lawrence, yes. So she thought that his close proximity to the, pro uh, to the conference meant that it would be seen as a way of um, generating publicity for the company. And that deeply irritated her. She thought it should be a little more objective or detached, mm -hmm. impartial. Mm -hmm. And he was, not, he was not that at all. No, so, he wanted to make money with it, or at least not lose money. Yes. He, I think, to be fair to him, I think he also was interested in trying to develop this broad literary canon. And all of the authors on the list were not McClellan and Stewart authors. No, no. Um, but she thought that it was a bit opportunistic. That in point of fact, that's also what was behind 
um, developing the conference was putting McClellan and Stewart at the center of publishing at, at, as he made this kind of selection. Fair enough. Um, she also benefited from it <laughs> because her books were subsequently selected for the NCL series, the New Canadian Library series. I don't think Richler's got on there. I can't. I can't remember. I, I don't think they did. Uh, they are now. Yeah. But I can't remember if at the time they were, if they made the but list. But it was to, to do with copyright, I think. That was the problem. It may be. I'm not 100% sure about yeah, it. But anyway. Maybe. Anyway, that was the, the, the issue with the, and that was one of their, another moment when the two of them really butt heads um, over issues. And they were... Publicity and promotion was a thing that McClellan was, I want to say, much better at, but certainly more invested in than she was. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so she thought this was just another ploy to develop publicity for the company. Well, there's a wonderful uh, sequence where she talks about the fact that she's, she, she wants to come back to Canada. She's exhausted she wants to rest up and see her friends and whatever and then you know she, she mentions the fact she's going across the country yes. and then of course he says well if you're going across the country then let's go to Edmonton and Calgary and Vancouver. Saskatoon Regina and, and oh she was she was <laughs> so frustrated right so he wanted his authors to promote their own work and he saw the author, the person of the author, as one of the best marketing tools. If they got behind their book and had a kind of public profile, public persona, that that would help to sell their books. That's not unusual now, but back then it was. It certainly was. Yeah. That was something that, that McClellan was, I don't want to say aggressively, but certainly was quite assertive about it. Um, so Lawrence was a really an introvert. Um, she didn't like having to do that. It exhausted her. She ra she preferred to spend time writing. But she, again, this is one of those moments where she would concede and do some degree of publicity. In fact, um, there was there were ideas that she came up with herself for the diviner. She came up with this record um, that she... 45, yeah. If, that's right, a 45 uh, RPM that she wanted to be sold um, as a kind of limited edition with some copies of the books. And so um, that was quite surprising for Lawrence. But again, it didn't involve her being physically present. It was a marketing tool that she could get behind. She had a... Um, so it was for the diners. There was a tune that she had in her head. She hummed the tune to a friend who then came up with the composition, and then they turned that into a record. So McClellan did listen. He wasn't going to do it at first. But he did, in fact, do it. But there were other things that he wanted her to do, aside from actually showing up and endorsing her books, that she had trouble with. So there was another moment, I think this was in Toronto, where he actually hired a diviner to attend right. the event. <laughs> yes. At the Science, uh, At I think the, it was the science, the science Museum. Science Museum, that's mm. right. And at first she was not keen on the idea but in the end, she actually quite liked it. She thought it worked superbly. So again, this is one of those moments where they were struggling to find a middle ground where they could agree this is the, the correct publicity tool for this particular book. We touched on the fact that uh, with, with this uh, correspondence, you get an interesting look at Canada and Great Britain and the U US, mm -hmm. their, their publishing uh, practices and Maybe I'll get you to read this. Sure. It starting at it. Oh, right there. At it. Okay, so this is a letter dated uh, May 17, 1960, and it's a more formal letter from Jack to Lawrence, we know, because it's Dear Mrs. Lawrence. Um, okay, so... It has been our experience that American houses insist on very comprehensive editing, that English houses, as a rule, require little or none and are inclined to go along with the author's script almost without query. The Canadian practice is just what you might expect, a middle-of-the-road course. We think the Americans edit too heavily and interfere with the author's rights. We think that the English publishers don't take enough editorial responsibility. Naturally, then, we consider our editing to be just about perfect. 
There's no doubt about it. We Canadians are a superior breed. <laughs> and it's so refreshing passage. to hear a Canadian talk like that. Yeah. It, he's not wrong. Um, so I work on, as I say, I work on other um, women writers in Canada. And so one of them, Jane Rule, her first book, which had to go through various publishers before it was finally, before it finally found publication, the British publishing house had about five or six corrections they offered. One of them, on the side of a passage that uh, Jane Rule had written, they said, would this be offensive to the Queen? And her response was, no. So they published it. <laughs> it was that simple. Mm -hmm. But the American publishers were far more rigorous and sometimes offended her. And so this was also the case here with Margaret Lawrence. There's also another instance of a, an author, of, actually a friend of hers, Adele Wiseman, who oh, was yes. uh, who was apparently offended. Now I'm not quite sure what who this was. I, I, there was reference to Atwood, but I don't think it was her because she apparently Wiseman was offended by uh, some harsh editorial remarks. I think from Anansi, and so she pulled her crackpot. Oh yes, her very first book. That's from, right. No, that wasn't her first book. Uh, uh, sorry, it's. I'm thinking. Well, there's Old Woman at Play. There's Crackpot, uh, and there's the sacrifice. sacrifice. There we go. Which is earlier. That's right. So we can wipe that out. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, that's okay. It's fine. So the. Um, so Adele Wiseman publishes a sacrifice elsewhere, and it wins the Governor General's award. And they refuse Crackpot. But this Mar was Macmillan, I think. It's Macmillan. Yeah. So Margaret Lawrence intervenes and writes, though not for the first time, she often writes to Jack McClellan about different Canadian writers. So she writes to Jack McClellan about Crackpot and asks him to look it over and consider publishing it, which he eventually does. But it's an important moment because it shows how Lawrence was or did have a hand um, in shaping the publishing terrain in the period. Mm. So she gets that book published. She doesn't get Old Women at Play published. That's the third book with uh, McClellan and Stewart. But what she does do is get Jack McClellan to pay attention to women writers in Canada. So there's, um, there's another collection, an anthology that comes out in the letters. Al Purdy is, is um, editing. The New Romans, is that it? Yeah, Storm Anthology, uh, Storm, Storm Warning. So there's already one version that comes out. There's a second version called Storm Warning 2. And so she looks at the manuscript and she realizes not that much by way of female representation. So she writes to Jack and insists that this be a consideration. And so at last, McClellan writes back and says that they will do it even if they have to expand the size of the book, which is what they then do. So he really heeds that kind of advice. That's what I get from the, from him, is that he's he's incredible with, with female authors. Yes, like for, Pat Blondell is another, oh yeah. For his, his era, he really yes. respects and wants to give women authors a voice. Yes, that's right. And it's not just authors, it's also the editors and the, those who work within his company. Mm. He's someone who really, um, uh, and I think it's uh, Linda McKnight who takes, out, who takes over after him, he really works cooperatively with women. Well, you There's, can tell throughout these letters. It's not just that he is respectful of Lawrence, it's also that he's respectful of women in general. Now, there are moments when he's not so respectful and he is self-aware so um, there he recounts there's an anecdote in one of the letters in which he talks about I want to say translator I think it's a, a female translator in Italy and he and another writer were hitting on the female translator and it's clearly a moment where that male um, bravado I suppose is showing he was a very good-looking guy I can make no comment on this. <laughs> Why not? Different era, different, I suppose. You don't think he was good looking? Well, I think what one can say is that he was perceived that way. And I think that's important. To, it's important that that said, that he was perceived as a handsome man. I'm losing it. I'm losing it here. <laughs> he was a good looking guy. That is kind of an objective statement. Yes, but I suppose what I'm trying to say is we have to see it in context. 
Whether or not we would see him as handsome now is irrelevant. In the period, he was seen as a handsome man. And so that's how he was viewed, and he used it for the sake of his company. That's what's important. So Yeah, he used all of his many talents his and charm. attributes, assets. Yeah. That's right. So he is apparently hitting on this Italian translator. <laughs> okay. okay. In one other letter, he says something <laughs> like he recognizes that other people see him as a male chauvinist pig. He says it outright. He makes jokes about that, yeah. doesn't he? Yeah. 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 He, he says something along those lines. Yeah. He goes out front with that kind of humor. Though. Yeah, you he know, says... He, he says this on March 28, 1973. What you are saying is that I'm a male chauvinist pig, and you're right, of course. Um, so he knows. He understands the kind of position he has. But the thing is, I don't think he is, though. Well, one can. it's complicated. One yeah. doesn't have to be one thing or another. No, no, you're one right. One can be many things simultaneously. Both, yeah. So he can be like this with some women, but with other women, clearly with Lawrence, and with other writers and editors, he, he was absolutely respectful and clearly defer to their their opinions or their advice. So it's complicated. With Lawrence, it's very clear that he is largely respectful, largely. Well, I'm, I was going to say throughout the throughout the correspondence, it's all you know, really professional and it doesn't seem to be much sexual innuendo or repartee or anything going on. No, I was just trying to find... There was a moment when... Um, he was suggesting a marketing technique or marketing um, ploy. He thinks it's a great idea. He thinks that he wants to he wants to use fine design and typography is what he says. It'll make a fine looking small book and it'll make a great gift item. What he doesn't realize is that he is creating the art, an artifact. The book is an artifact that is feminine. So she takes umbrage. And so this is her response. This is in February 23rd, 1976. She replies, what a good idea about making the book a great gift item. Had you considered the vast possibilities of selling each copy individually wrapped in pink tissue paper, tied about with a wide pink ribbon, or perhaps a tiny tasteful bunch of plastic forget-me-nots? Of course, dripping with irony, she adds, similarly, your idea of having some competent commercial artist dress the book up with some sketches and drawings, mood background sketches, as you so wittily phrase it seems to me, Nothing less than scintillating. Of course, the irony was not lost on him, and he swiftly apologized thereafter. So there were moments when he did approach her as a female author, and that bothered her. Yeah, she would have none of that. Oh, no. Yeah, it's funny, you know. And again, I'm just bringing this up, but there was quite a, a harsh description of her. It might have been in Time magazine. Well, they, they talked about her looking like a chimpanzee or something. There was some, some I don't remember the exact physical characterization, but there was certainly a, a remark that was meant to denigrate her. Mm-hmm. There were moments, not just like that, but other moments when, for example, the Diviners, there was the censorship controversy. Mm-hmm. Um, the book was being pulled from Ontario, Ontario reading lists. Um, and it was being covered in the papers for the scandalous elements um, of the book. And so moments like that, when there's this kind of comment, as you say, on her physical appearance or the comment on the diviners, she wouldn't feel hurt exactly, but she would feel deep frustration and, I think, anger. Mm. And his response always was, all publicity is good publicity. Mm, yeah. To be patient with it because it actually did draw still better attention for the book, mm-hmm. even so. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, this is almost like a textbook, I think, on how to be a good publisher. <laughs> how, to, how to deal well and respectfully with one's authors, certainly. Exactly. And so he'll typically lavish praise on her I think you've written another outstanding book. My reaction, and it is confirmed by my associates, is one of tremendous enthusiasm. But he'll always come forward then with some honest criticism. Yes. Really honest and blunt. Yes. Uh, Having been that nice, you will perhaps forgive me 
if I now voice a few mild criticisms. Yes. But it's always, you know... It's tempered. It's tempered, and it's there's a, there's a definite kind of little tinge of humor in it. Um, yes. But it's also very direct and useful. Yes. Well, he was an experienced hand at reading Canadian literary texts. He knew what he was dealing with, and he had already had considerable success publishing Canadian authors. So she knew she could trust him, and she knew that he wasn't working out of a sense of ego. She knew he wasn't trying to micromanage her. So she took his suggestions with, I think, considerable uh, grace. And she, seriously. She, she, she took them very seriously, and she, she acted did. on she did. them. Many of them, not all of them. No. She really felt firmly about some of the suggestions she wouldn't make any alterations. That is, if she felt firmly about keeping the book as it was, she wouldn't make the said alterations. But they were like this with each other. So she would also make comments about um, various facets of the publishing industry. We already talked about the Writers' Union of Canada and the contracts that were being implemented. But she also made recommendations about the kinds of books that he was publishing. There was um, a book um, on the, uh, that he was publishing on the subject of Iran by Roloff Benny as one example. And he was, he, he believed this was a great idea. She was appalled that he would do that because of the political climate in the period. And she wrote to him to suggest that he reconsider. He did go ahead and publish it anyway. But they were forthright. They were quite candid with each other in these kind of interactions. And neither really took deep offense when they disagreed. Mm -hmm. They could write pages and pages about why they disagreed, but the friendship that undergirded those letters, that undergirded those comments, remained. It was solid. And as, as you say, as we started, um, when we began talking, we talked about how respect was key. They always respected each other fundamentally, and that's what, what made the relationship, the, the professional friendship, continue, always. This is just an example of uh, humor here. I hope the sales, and this is a letter uh, f from uh, Margaret to Jack, I hope the sales will exceed expectations. Although if it is true that in Canada people buy fewer books <laughs> per year than in any other country except Siam, then one does not expect miracles, especially as this book is not likely to be serialized in Ladies' Home Journal or purchased by Walt Disney. <laughs> well, yeah. I think, again, that's the thing about Jack McClellan. Um, if he couldn't sell a book... Who could in the Canadian literary scene? Who could? I think it was... He a, did everything you can imagine to, do, to sell books. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, we're so lucky to have had him. I think. I think so. I think that's quite right. I think authors coveted to be part of that stable of authors um, because they knew that he would take really good care. And as you say, there I don't know that there was anyone of his energy and capacity and um, originality, really, in terms of uh, marketing and endorsements and so on. He really backed his writers. He was really quite respectful of them. I should mention that those are probably recent graduates at Bishop's. <laughs> background. Here. It's convocation day here at Bishop's. <laughs> and they're outside celebrating. <laughs> yeah, and the thing is, she really didn't like disagreeing either. I dislike uh, so much having a disagreement with someone I like, she said. Yes, I think so. She did, but she did disagree. So that might be true, that um, that she felt disinclined to have to do it. But she would still disagree with him, and she was quite forthright. And so he teased her, I think, in one or two letters, talking about her what he called her "quote unquote" lunatic suggestions, and tried to explain to her that the publishing industry was far more complex than she realized. But she learned about the, the publishing industry as they went forward. Mm -hmm. And so her insights began to become more sophisticated as they proceeded because she began to learn through him how the publishing industry worked. So uh, uh, the, the difference, of course, was that she was, uh, he was um, backing his writers, but 
she was someone who also wanted to protect other writers. She understood them from the writer's point of view rather than the publisher's point of view. That's that's a difference. Mm -hmm. So that was why she could try to come up with that kind of contract I was arguing uh, or that I was talking about before and why she would argue with Jack McClellan about that contract because she was writing from the writer's point of view, not from the publishing company. So again, he teased her at, um, at one interval and referred to her as the den mother or block parent um, for all of these writers in Canada because she was someone who took the writers under her wing. There was a kind of parental role she was assuming. So yes, you're right, he was really good with Canadian authors, but she was better in some ways because she had that distinct point of view. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, he, he had basically trying to make a profit yes. as a motive yes. uh, so th that's pretty bored or at least not to lose money if he yes. could help it yes yes um whereas did you say she has she with that contract she, in particular she had a, she had several concerns right she had a political agenda that's why for example she was looking at rudy weeb or she was looking at say female writers the, mm. their inclusion in storm warning or um, seeing Adele Wiseman's next book published. So um, she was looking at representing the indigenous. She was looking at, even even so far as that was quite limited, I must say. Mm. Um, she was looking at including female writers. She was, she was interested in including a younger generation of authors. So she was trying to express a sense of continuity. She had a different political agenda, if you will. But as you also mentioned, she would have a different sense of um, economy. That is, the aesthetic integrity of the author's work must always be protected, even as they were trying to make money for the author. Jack McClellan was thinking about publishing in Canada as a whole. Mm -hmm. So slightly different aims or objectives. And of course, he was looking to make money for the company. And it's probably one of the hardest businesses to make money in Canada. I think so. Even uh, that harder you can now. imagine. Yeah, yeah, even harder now, I would think. Here's an instance, for example, of uh, what what they came up against. And this is a letter, December 63, to Margaret. Unfortunately, the book, The Tomorrow Tamer, has been on sale in the English edition in Vancouver ever since English publication. Mm -hmm. And there's not much we can do about it. So the booksellers were, I guess, buying the British edition from England and selling them before the Canadian Jack version. had a chance to publish the uh -huh. Canadian version. That was an issue that was happening at the time. Books were coming across the border and being sold either before the Canadian version was in circulation or for a lot less than the Canadian version. Yeah, yeah like the paperback, uh, mass paperbacks were coming in. Yeah. That's right. So this was a, a huge protest that was happening in the country and they were trying to figure out how to work with copyright laws in order to effect change, in order to, pub uh, to protect Canadian publishing companies which were therefore um, at risk mm -hmm. by these kinds of practices. So McClellan had a hand in also trying to change that kind of political scene as well. Yeah, he was a member of the, and in fact, he, he may have chaired it, the Committee for an Independent Canada. Yes, I believe so, yes. He was an impressive man. He was uh, indefatigable, <laughs> just someone who worked countless hours and I think also put his own physical well-being at risk in, in doing this. So there are moments in the letters where they... T they well, it's not even specifically Jack McClellan who is saying it, but it's his administrative assistant who is writing on his behalf to Margaret Lawrence to say he had to take a mandatory holiday. In Bermuda, right? That's right. Yeah. Because his own physical and psychological well-being were being compromised by the kind of investment he was making in the company. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that's important that people understand, that it was personal, too, to him. So personal that he was compromising his health. I recently interviewed a, a, the author of a, a book, uh, a biography of uh, Blanche Knopf, and it's filled with salacious detail. Apparently Blanche and um, Alfred had a pretty asexual relationship, and she slept with a lot of major conductors of the day because Alfred 
had a real interest in music. So I think she was... And that might have been a way of trying to get his attention. It, it, that's exactly right. The book illustrates the fact that Blanche was instrumental in the success of that company, and she's been pushed into a secondary role by, uh, by Alfred in particular. Which leads me to the question about Jack's marriage. Not much nope. at all nope. mentioned about that. I think she invites them both over for supper once. Yes. And he doesn't even know if she's going to show up. Yes. So what's yes. your take on that? And also there's very, there is some about her, her son, and a little bit about her relationship with her husband, but not much. And so they, they did have a sense of what was going on in each other's personal lives. Um, we do have a sense, for example, of uh, it's well now, it's well known now that Lawrence then ends up getting a divorce, that that, that that relationship ultimately fails for reasons that she doesn't really explore in the letters. And so my sense is that they understood that these letters would one day become public. So they acknowledge this at various intervals. He'll, he'll say, I'm, he said to her in one letter, I'm saving the letters as a matter of public record you should be doing the same. She refers to her letters as a kind of archive, like, like a pharaoh's tomb. They're self-censoring. Oh, yes, I think so. I think they were very, um, uh, very controlled about what they decided to divulge. It, it's, uh, I, I think, a kind of... They gave us glimpses, but not a lot. And fair enough, because we don't really need to know that information no, in order to understand no. what they were doing in the publishing scene. Well, they're they're really interesting without having the, the salacious details. Yeah, I don't think we need them. No, and so I think no. that's what they were aware of. I'm sure that they were aware of those details because they spoke to each other over the phone or saw each other in person. And so I think there was a kind of awareness, mm. but a real sense of discretion that sh that's shown. Nonetheless, anyone picking up these letters will have a sense of where the tensions are. So we have this kind of low-level, uh, the tensions aren't low-level, but these kinds of um, dis, dis, like little flecks, if you will, of what's actually happening in, e in each other's personal lives, but they don't flesh it out. So an astute reader will know, aha, this is the moment when Lawrence is very clearly having a problem with her relationship and... Um, is it's heading for and she's heading for a divorce, but she doesn't actually explore in these letters. No. Doesn't say that there's no real loss, but it's it's just I think it's worth worth commenting on. It is. It is. Well, for anyone who wants to pick up these letters, they should know that they won't be finding those kinds of um, salacious details. They will get some great go literary gossip, if you will. So there's a wonderful moment when. Um, they're talking about the fundraising supper and Atwood cannot attend. She can't attend because she's on a promotional tour in Australia, which is precisely the kind of thing that McClellan would have wanted of Lawrence. And in her place, she sends a blow-up doll of some kind, a kind of um, uh, an icon of herself, with a tape recorder that goes off at intervals saying, how lovely that you're writing a novel. No, I'm sorry, I don't help with editing of other people's novels. And so it was, it's a wonderful, funny moment that... You know, that they that they sort of write around, so we get moments like that in the letters where they're talking about what's actually happening in the literary scene or how authors are performing or not and why and how they can actually help them. So it's also wonderfully supportive. They're wonderfully supportive of other writers. Too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, here's a remark. This is Jack to Margaret in May fourth, nineteen sixty-five. Silly though it may seem, I'm beginning to think that there may be a correlation between intelligence and marital problems. <laughs> it would be too pat to conclude that intelligent and creative people don't stay married, but there seems to be some sort go. of pattern. <laughs> Three of our most gifted authors have been involved in separations in the last 12 months, and I know of at least three others who have seriously contemplated during the same period. I'll skip a bit. And I think marriage probably requires an, an extraordinarily unimaginative type of complacency. <laughs> so on the one hand, it, it, that also speaks to 
the increasing divorce rate in the period, right? So he's actually, he's without realizing it, he's signaling that this is what is happening in the period more generally, although he's attributing it to the authors because he can count the number in his own um, stable of authors for whom this is happening. But he's also nodding. Um, he's gesturing towards the fact that the two of them are also, that, that she and he are, are having issues in their own relationships. And so he's saying, well, we can, we can suggest that this is a, a sign of our creativity and this is why we, we, we're not doing so well. Right. Yeah. The Stone Angel, which, uh, would you say that was, that was one of her, like, her first big, uh, important... Yeah, yeah. big hits, if you will. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it didn't win the Governor General's Award. No. Uh, it was a Le Pan, Douglas Le, was it I, Le Pan? It might have been. Yeah. It might have been. Anyway, I think there was quite a bit of outrage about that. But yes. uh, what she says about that is that it wasn't any big disappointment to me, but it is nice to know that you and some others think the Stone Angel is worthwhile. Yes. Which McClellan did think, yeah, he did think. I, I think that's just so important that she needed to to hear that, and he sure provided it to her. Yes, that as long as she felt that he endorsed her, she didn't feel these other either failures or issues quite so keenly. So even we had talked about earlier the the, pub, the moment of publicity where she was receiving negative publicity. If he backed her, she wouldn't take it quite so badly. Yeah. So that endorsement was key. And I think, as you say, this could be a handbook for publishers. That's what's required mm -hmm. in order for this kind of author to continue. She had Jack McClelland as an audience. Yeah. And that's so important. It's so important. So, the, incidentally, The Stone Angel is the uh, one of the books where they were trying to figure out the title. That's right. And I, I love the way he handled it. He, you know, he just said, I, I think it was Hagar. They, she wanted to call it Hagar. Initially. And it wasn't that he came up with a bunch of suggestions. He kind of pushed her to come up with something, and she yes. came up with The Stone yes. Angel. Yes, and when she finally hit up on The Stone Angel, she realized that is a much better title, and here are my reasons for it. I... I, I I now agree with what you're suggesting, and I think he was right. Hagar would not have been a successful title. Mm -hmm. The Sonido is much better, mm -hmm. much more evocative, and that's what he was trying to push her to do. Throughout the letters, uh, every time she comes uh, with a new manuscript, <laughs> this is the most difficult time for her, is between when she hands it in and is waiting for feedback. She's almost anxious. desperate for his feedback. Yeah, she's anxious. Yes, yes. Well, and it shows the kind of the nature of the relationship. If he approves of the said book, she'll feel at greater ease. He never, ever lets her down. He never says, this mm. is a terrible book. And, no. and she's producing a, a, at a certain level, so fair enough. He doesn't have to say that. However... Um, there is that anxiety or fear that he will disapprove. And so, as her audience, he consistently gives her his endorsement and says, these, are, these might be my critiques, but largely, well done again. Mm -hmm. And in fact, as you pointed out in one letter, he says to her, you're getting better with time. And he says that all is building, you know? Mm -hmm. And he rare, he's, I don't think he, he suggests that this is very, very rare. Yes, that's right. Yeah. You indicate that uh, that she played a sort of a maternal, parental role with the, the yes, other... the then mother. The then mother. I would suggest that he's almost, not not in a kind of a power balance or, or anything, but he's he is playing also that role <laughs> to her. Yes, of course. You could see it that way. Like, like perhaps like what most publishers should do. You know... Uh, it's an interesting thing. I don't know enough about McClellan to know if he was like this with all of his authors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This would be a really good project for someone to pick up now. Um, if it's true that he was that he behaved in this way with his other authors, I would say he was definitely like a dead mother. He certainly was very supportive of her, offered her all kinds of suggestions and feedback and 
um, had had her back was was really wonderful in all kinds of ways um, when he wasn't annoying her when they weren't fighting mm. um, uh, fighting well I should say mm -hmm. diplomatically constructively constructively yeah. and diplomatically but um, I, I think he saw her as a dead mother because she was also looking at writers who were developing who didn't yet have a publisher who needed guidance she really worked cooperatively with a much broader literary scene than he did once you were on board with McClellan and Stewart then he had your back mm -hmm. but Lawrence was working with authors who, who didn't yet have a publisher that's why I think he saw her that way she was protective of the entire literary scene mm-hmm mm -hmm. Well, I think he saw huge talent. He knew talent when he saw it, yeah. and he knew how special he was. Yeah, I agree. Mm. Yes, I think so. We haven't mentioned the fact that she spent a fair amount of early on in uh, of her time. She she was living in England. Yes. So yes, um, yes. Um, so initially, she thought that she would write about Canada better while being away and then realized that that was a mistaken assumption that she could write just as well um, when she was in Canada. Um, there are some wonderful interactions about um, how to deal with the taxation system between countries and so he is a little too, gives a little too much advice in view of that and uh, suggests that he, she should consult Mordecai Richler, but of course she writes back and says something along the lines, I'm not, I'm not an idiot. <laughs> well, I'm also not as rich as he is. Yeah, but he was also being a little patronizing in his approach. Yeah, she, she, she goes out of her way to say, uh, uh, yeah, exactly, that I'm, I'm smart about this. Yes. I'm not naive or anything. Yes. I, I think one of, the, one of the gems in the book one of the letters, is his response to the Diviner's manuscript. It's, I'm trying to remember. It's, it's just uh, an amazing letter. Actually, you... you, uh, you um, did we, talk, we talked about this. So we put no, the but you put, we the put the real the, thing in there. That's right, you, we did. You, because it's... Because, I suppose, because you... You agree that it's... Uh, it's really worth. Uh, it's it's really worth paying attention to. Yes, I'm just remembering that he. Twelfth uh, of June, nineteen seventy three. Let me start by saying that the manuscript contains some of the greatest writing you've ever done. Oh yes. I ended up in, as you said earlier, I ended up in tears during the last half hour. You are a great writer, and you have proved it once again. What a tribute. What a tribute. He also says, one of my great regrets in publishing is that I've never managed to get to know Judith Jones more than casually. Judith Jones out of New York and Knopf. Okay. Who uh, Lawrence acknowledges is, is, a, is a superb editor and, and really... Uh, responsible for how well mm. the diviners turns out he's again though that's what that suggests to me is how he how respectful he is about different female figures in the literary or publishing scene the other person who comes to mind is Anna Porter mm -hmm. the, the woman he hires who then becomes an almost an icon you know uh, this impressive figure in her own right in the publishing field. Yeah, she's got her own company. She starts her own company. And so with others. but That's right, but it's a result of the fact that he believes in her first and takes her on. So that this is just what you're suggesting here. It's just another instance of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what you've shown in these uh, uh, graphic images is uh, Margaret's response to Jack's letter about mm -hmm. the diviners. Yes, that's right. So the, that's uh, all her marginalia. Yeah, well, you'll see. that. It, so I, I could only wish that all of the listeners could do this, pick up the book and have a look. Mm. Well, but they'll have to buy it. Well, and yes, it's, uh, you buy just, the book. 
You the, just go to uh, the well, the the universe. What is it? The University of Alberta, Alberta Press, Press website. That's yeah, right. And you can find it there. The um, we've included in the middle of the book images of, as you've already suggested, images of some of the letters. And so she comments again. She took his comments very seriously. But there is a moment where, beside one of his comments, she puts in big capital letters, no, N-O. <laughs> mm. So it's clear that there are moments where she would be firm about making, not making changes, I should say. Mm-hmm. And in other instances, she wrote and it would explain, yes, I will do it, I'll do it, and I'll make the change that you suggest in this way. So she was very clear about negotiating with him when she could. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think he expected her to accept. I think he says that in many of his letters is, you know, these are, of course, these are just suggestions. Uh, yes. Take them uh, for what you will. Yes, exactly. Mm. What's your takeaway from this correspondence? Um, well, a couple of things. I would say one is that the, the nature of the relationship allowed for a kind of influence to take to take effect so the fact that they could share so much with each other that they could criticize each other respectfully but they could crit- criticize each other that they were open to each other's suggestions meant that they allowed for um, changes to take place he listened to her she listened to him her books were better for it the publishing field was better for it uh, so it wasn't just a personal thing that a uh, personal effect on Lawrence. It was the fact that he would listen and incorporate other writers. So I think that is one really standout takeaway. I think the other thing is, as you say, it suggests a kind of or offers a kind of uh, dynamic that I think might be useful in the future for other publishing interactions. It demonstrates how it might be done respectfully, uh, collegially, without you know, causing harm. She had to listen to him about publishing and marketing techniques, um, about, about how to implement a, a, a kind of publicity trajectory that she would not have otherwise entertained. And often, I was gonna say sometimes, actually often it worked, it worked. But he also had to listen to her too about including more female authors, about politically diversifying the kind of authors he was representing. They mutually benefited from each other. She was diagnosed with uh, cancer. Yes. In 1986. Correct. And it was, I guess it was barely aggressive cancer. Yes. 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 It's a a really sad moment. He, he, He writes and responds to the news in a way that is evocative. Very much so, yeah. He, uh, he, this is September 15th, 86. He says, Margaret, uh, I don't know of anyone who has more friends who care because the fact is that you have done more for people than anyone else I know. I hear about it constantly. The number of well-known writers, unknown writers, and aspiring writers that you have helped is beyond calculation. God help us all. It will be very rough on you, and it won't be too easy for the multitudes mm-hmm. of us who love and care about you so much. Isn't it? A, it's a wonderful, heartbreaking, wonderful tribute. He knows that he's about to lose her, and he wants her to know how much she means not only to him, but to the field in general. I, what I think this book also does, therefore, is it offers a kind of recovery. Lawrence has not been given considerable attention in the past 10 years for all kinds of reasons, but it helps to locate her historically and, and explain, I think, what her place was in the development of the field. This is later on in that letter. We are dealing with a projected medical death sentence for a person who has done more for Canada, who has meant more to Canada than any writer I can think of during my lifetime. Yes. Yes. It's it's a marvelous tribute. And just so nice that he's able to say it to her. Yes. Or write it to her. Yes. 
And I think she would have appreciated that thoroughly. No, it's a great read. It's so much. Uh, I mean, if you if you uh, if you love Canadian literature, if you if you're interested in in publishing, it's uh, even if you're if you're interested in Margaret Lawrence, or if you want to hear about how books find publication and what it takes, the kind of interactions that may actually be occasioned in the process. This is the book, but really, it's also this heartwarming. Uh, enchanting, delightful collection of letters between two key figures in the Canadian literary scene. I enjoyed reading it as I was putting it to get together, and I still had to go through all of the work of editing it. Someone who just has to pick this up and read it, I think, will absolutely love it. Will love it. Well, I sure do. Thanks so much for for the work that you put into this, uh, you and uh, Laura K. Davis. Thank you for setting this up and thank you for hosting me. I, I really appreciated that too. Thank you. Linda Mora is a professor of Canadian literature and Canadian studies at Bishop's University in Sherbrooke, Quebec. Thanks again. Thank you. <laughs>